Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We're doing good today? Ooh, all right. Hot mic. Um, hey, guys, so before we get into today's passage, about a hundred, or not a hundred, but hundreds of years before the story you just heard, there was a different story, another story that had similar vibes to it. Hey, context really quick. Israel had just gone through a pretty nasty split. There was a north side of Israel and a south side of Israel. And at one point, there was a north side of Israel king whose name was Ahab. Okay? Now, let me just describe to you Ahab as described to us through the scriptures, just so you can get a picture of who Ahab was, what he was about. Okay? This is 1 Kings 16. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Okay, not good. A couple verses later, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Not great. Okay, a couple verses later, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So not looking good. Not the best king in the world, okay? This king was supposed to lead Israel towards Yahweh, away from idols, and towards the unification of Israel as one nation. Instead, what does he do? More evil than any before him. He intermarries with a whole different tribe, and if you've read your Bible... Jezebel is not a holy character in any stretch of the imagination, and he makes altars and idols to her false gods, okay? But there was a prophet in the day named Elijah, okay? Elijah's one of my favorite dudes of all time. God gives Elijah the task of going to Ahab and telling him he's not doing a good job, okay? Who signs up for that job, right? So Elijah, this is 1 Kings 18, Elijah confronts Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. Now, Elijah's task was not just to tell Ahab off, but also to turn the hearts of Israel back to the Lord. So this is one of my favorite stories of all time. It's not the point of today. We cannot go as deep as I would like to go. But Elijah then challenges all of Jezebel's prophets, the prophets who served Baal, to a contest. Okay, please go read this on your own. It's incredible. But real quick, here's the skinny. Elijah says, okay, you make an altar and I'll make an altar. What you're going to do is you're going to pray to your god, Baal, and you're going to ask for him to consume your altar, send fire from the heavens, okay? And then I'll do the same thing after you go, okay? And it's awesome because the, the prophets of Baal, start, they start chanting, they start cutting themselves, they start doing all sorts of stuff that's just crazy. They're crying out to their god. Elijah even starts trolling them a little bit, which is awesome, right? Uh, First, First Kings 18, 27, Elijah starts, says, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or maybe he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Okay, so Elijah's just having a little bit of fun. Well, naturally, nothing happens, and then Elijah steps up. He goes above and beyond. He says, hey, actually pour water all over my altar three times. Like, just soak it up. And this is what he prays. Um, 1 Kings 18.38, praise to God. And as the kids say these days, things got lit. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And look at the response. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It worked. 
like repentance, like Elijah, this huge showdown moment, just this God showed up, it worked, the people are falling on their face, so cool. But here's where it ties in to the story today. Ahab then goes and tells Jezebel what Elijah has done, and she is livid. She vows and promises to never stop until Elijah is destroyed. And I won't spoil it for you, but go back and read 1 Kings kind of 17 on. We'll tell the story of this. The story goes. But this story is famous, right? Elijah calls out the big bad king for his sins, and then he gets run out of town and hunted down to be killed. There's just this response to that kind of uh, him calling him out. So Israelites in Jesus' day would have known this story. Elijah was like, like one of just the, the guys, like this was it. This was part of their faith. And plus, we've seen this many times, we said this many times, but in the last book of our Old Testament in Malachi, uh, Malachi uh, prophesies, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So now we've picked up Mark, we've already taught through this, but we get John the Baptist. He even looks like Elijah coming on the scene, and what happens? God gives him the job of going to this Roman-appointed leader of the Israelite people. Herod, his actual name's Antipas. Herod is more of a title, so like Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, but we'll just call him Herod today. So he goes to Herod and telling him he's not doing a good job, okay? Now Herod, he was not a good ruler, and it's kind of ironic here that, that Mark actually calls him King Herod because uh, Herod actually petitioned to Rome to be called king. I think at the time he was called like regent or something like that, to be called king, and Rome actually denied him, which is kind of funny. So then when Mark puts in King Herod, it's almost like in quotations, which is great. But he, he, so he's denied to be king. He actually builds his capital city over an ancient cemetery, which is completely denying Jewish travelers and settlers because they would actually be, they'd be perpetually unclean to even be in Herod's courts. And in fact, one of the main things that he was known for was that he desired and fell in love with his brother's wife, divorced his own wife, and then his brother's wife left his brother to get together with him. And that's Herodias. Okay, so not, not great. Um, and this completely violates the Levitical law of Leviticus 20.21. 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. So Herod is not doing great. Okay, you kind of have this like Ahab vibes with Herod here. Um, and so just like John, just like Elijah, John the, Baptist, John the Baptist is tasked to go to Herod and say, hey, you are not doing a good job. Herod's not going to like it, but Herodias really doesn't like it. Mark 6, 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. So Herod Antipas imprisoned John, but he wouldn't execute him. Why? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But alas, as we said before, Herod was not a good ruler, and he was not a strong man. And even though he might have never hurt John, he surrounded himself with people with evil intentions, and by association, he was caught up in their actions. So many scholars believe that Herodias actually devised this entire scene. She knew her husband, her new husband, uh, she knew him. She knew what would happen if he maybe drank a little too much, you know, this kind of thing. So um, he knew that Herod was going to throw a huge party, have a bunch of people in there. Herod wanted to be liked. And so they threw in some little bit non-traditional activities, such as the provocative dancing of his own niece. Okay, kind of like creepy uncle vibes up in here, right? It's just not good. He's captivated by her. So he does the most romantic thing he can think of, and he grants her wishes. 
Now, unlike an actual genie who can actually grant wishes, right, who has three rules. What does he say? I can't kill anyone, I can't make anyone fall in love, and I can't bring anyone back from the dead, right? My kids just watched Aladdin, so it was fresh in my mind, okay? Right? But his niece runs to her mother after this, asking, well, Herod's going to give me any wish I want. What should I do? And her first response is, option number one, kill someone. Verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Okay, this is his niece telling him that. And the king was exceedingly sorry. The NIV says greatly distressed, which is fascinating because that's the same phrase that's used for Jesus in Gethsemane, which is fascinating. Greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So the thing to see, Herod, he was more, way more coward than cruel, right? He had to go along with it out of peer pressure. He'd surrounded himself with these people that he couldn't go against. They beheaded John, presented it at a banquet on a platter meant for food to the girl who then presented it to her mother, Herodias, right? He, he fed the appetite of the cruel and the unjust. And then John's disciples came and buried his bottle, bottle body. So no wonder, once Herod starts hearing about Jesus and about these miraculous powers going on in the land, plus the guilt he has of killing someone who potentially connected to God himself, when he starts hearing these things, is John the Baptist back from the dead? Is this the long-awaited Elijah that, that was said to come again? Is this some other prophet of old now that's coming to haunt me? Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod himself believed John was resurrected. Now, I'm going to do this little segment today, whatever. It's just, I'm going to call them my hot takes. Okay, my hot takes. It's just stuff that comes up as we're learning God's word and just things that jump right out. You can agree, you cannot agree. Sorry. Hot take number one. If you aren't listening to the word of God, you will listen to the most compelling argument. Okay? Herod, he wasn't listening to God, but to, or, or, uh, and, um, sorry, he, if Herod was actually listening to John, he would have heard that Jesus was different than him, mightier than he, unwilling to tie his own sandals, or untie his own sandals, and that Jesus was coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit. If he actually listened to what he was saying, he would know this is different right? But he didn't listen to John's preaching. He listened to his own guilt. He listened to the audience that he surrounded himself with, and he drew conclusions based on that. Now, the interesting thing about his conclusion, conclusion is that resurrection was, and still is, to believe to be, if not the main sign, that the judgment day of the Lord has come. So even if this was true, and this was John the Baptist resurrected, this should have brought Herod to his knees. Like, this should have been like, uh-oh, like the day of the Lord is here. This should have been an Elijah moment where all the people falling to their knees, proclaiming the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, but we aren't told anything about that. In fact, you can go research this, but historians believe that shortly after this, Herod and Herodias were accused of treason to Rome. They were exiled to a whole different area, and they ended up committing suicide. Not good, right? Not good at all. So now before we move on to Jesus, real quick, it's just interesting why this is here in Mark's gospel. Why would we go right before this passage, Jesus sending out the disciples to now be the apostles to the seemingly elsewhere in the region, John dies kind of story, and then we're right back to Jesus and his apostles. 
Like, why is this sandwich in here? Why would Mark spend time on this story where the other gospel writers barely or even don't mention it? One argument I would pose is just simply that Mark is doing two things. Okay, first, he is setting up the intriguing question that everyone seems to be asking, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? As we looked at last week, his own family and neighborhood don't get it. His disciples have to track him down and often ask him on the side, what are you talking about? Right? He's performing miracles, but no one knows how. He's ticking all the religious leaders off. Who is this guy? He's setting us up for later in the gospel. Mark records this interaction with Jesus and his disciples coming full circle to this moment. Mark 8, 27. And on the way, he asks his disciples, well, who do you say I am? Who, uh, who do people say I am? And they told him, they say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, and we're not there yet. I don't want to, spoiler alert, I don't want to get there. You have to wait a few weeks, okay? I can't spoil it. Uh, a little teaser. But Mark is teasing out that Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is not just another biblical character we should all learn from, just like Moses, just like Elijah. Jesus is different. Jesus is not another John, and John was not Jesus. Okay, secondly, Mark's gospel is arguing that Jesus is the only true king. Not Herod, not Caesar Augustus, no one but Jesus. Where, quote, King Herod provided death and destruction on a silver platter to his people, King Jesus is about to provide life and life abundantly in humble baskets to his followers. So let's pick it up. Chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Okay, hot take number two. Jesus knows the needs of his followers. This might seem obvious to you guys, but as the disciples are also still trying to figure out who is this guy, they're finding out that this rabbi cares for them right? It wasn't like, Jesus, we did like all you asked, and all this amazing stuff happened, and we haven't even had time to sit, or sit or, 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 and eat and get her done. Jesus is like, well, you certainly had time to tell me that little tale, didn't you? Why don't you go stop thinking about yourself and get more done, right? That's kind of how like rabbis are like, stop thinking about yourself, give, 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 give. But Jesus says, no, you're tired, you're hungry, come away. Let's give you rest. He cares, okay? Kind of a cool transition here because the apostles, now that's what they're, they're referenced to, they were the disciples, but now Mark kind of uh, is using at, from verse 7, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. Literarily, Mark is using now the sent ones, that's literally what apostle means to reference the disciples. So Jesus knows the needs of his followers, he knows they're exhausted, verse 31, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now listen, I love to rest. Any nap takers in here? Yeah? Okay, cool. I love, I just love naps, right? I tell Christy all the time, like, the best phrase I can hear is, Matt, you don't have any responsibilities, go back to bed. Like, that's like, if I could just hear that, that's the best phrase of all time, right? I get it, especially if I've had no downtime, if I'm hungry, I get it, you know? But these apostles, they were starving, they were exhausted, they'd just been around people all the time, and they needed rest. Now, verse 33, Many saw them going, okay, they're in a boat. Many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Okay, now imagine, you're on a boat, you're exhausted from incredible ministry work, 
you're back with your rabbi, you know you're about to go get some Chick-fil-A or something like that, but you're on a boat, you can't turn around, you can't hide, and you just see mass amounts of people running to try to get to where you're about to go, okay? How do you feel? A little bewildered? Maybe a little angry? A little resentful of like, don't they know? Like, can we just be left of not been happy to see these people. But here's a line that has floored me this last couple weeks, right? Just floored me recently because it's so simple and it's so powerful of Jesus when he looks at the crowds. This is what it says, verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It just floors me. He had compassion on them. Compassion comes from kind of that word of like turning towards going to somebody, not away from somebody, going towards, right? I was talking to Christy about this line, and and obviously for us, um, like, this is so scandalous, because the biggest reference point we have is kids, right? Of just like, we're just exhausted, we just want our own space, and yet, who is here? Who's pounding on the door? Who wants our attention right now as kids, right? And it just floors us, because we have to say this to ourselves. We have to say, okay, we have compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. It works about half the time. The other half, I'm just angry, okay? But it works about half. But it goes back just real quick, and we can't go into it, but remember Exodus 34? God gives Moses the tablets, and then he says, I'm going to pass by you and say my character, say my name, my very, who I am. I'll just read it real quick. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Like Jesus here, remember Mark is kind of, he's juxtaposing all these characters and revealing to us who Jesus is, and Jesus here is displaying God-like character. When every other human, when everybody else would have been angry, resentful, wanting to go away, he had compassion and turned toward the people. In verse, this is what it means to be the good shepherd. Verse 35, they're still human though. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Seems reasonable, right? It's not a weird request. Verse 37, Jesus looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. (laughs) So Jesus Uh, When we told you that we performed many miracles, we saw many miraculous signs, we didn't discover yet how to create food out of nothing. Like somehow we missed that in the spiritual gifts evaluation. So are you saying we need to go spend like a year's wages worth on bread? Honestly, that's a complete waste of time and resources. And listen, I've been there before. I was a youth pastor for years. You know how much money I spent on things that got used so fast that I'm blown away it took me a whole week to prepare, right? Like 300 water balloons gone in less than five minutes. Like, not a fun experience. And guess who had to pick up all the balloon pieces, right? Like the incoming freshman. Okay, I'm not, I'm not Jesus, right? So you guys know the story. Jesus asks, well, what do we have? Hot take number three. Jesus can do more with what we already have than we could ever progress to on our own. Okay, it's just my hot take. Take or leave it. So what do they have? The miracle isn't in your provision, it's in my provision of what you already have. They said five loaves and two fish. Great. A small meal from one, maybe two people. So this is where Jesus goes to work. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
I love the details in here. I want to talk about them real quick. He makes the people lie down in green pastures. What does that sound like, right? Just like Psalm 23. He organizes them in groups of 50 or 100, right? He brings the chaos to order. Now, this is a weird thing for Mark to write about. Why would he be so specific? Okay, first cool contrast in just that there was like this wasteland and this kind of energy and emotional level of the disciples and potentially the people if they were running from hearing that John the Baptist was just beheaded, horrific news, he's bringing them now to green pastures, he's bringing that chaos to order, he's kind of bringing life to this group that just experienced death. Then Jesus organizes them in groups. They're not just animals, it's not just first come, first serve. Okay? They're human beings. It's not just a crowd. He's creating community. Now, the numbers are actually significant. It's biblically irresponsible to not talk about Moses and, and God's provision of manna from heaven in the desert. So you know, all know the story well. God causes this manna, kind of flaky buttermilk biscuits, to fall from the sky right, to the people. And as time goes on, the people still grumble about it. They complain about it. And Moses is doing more. He's leading more. He's exhausted. He has too much on his plate, and he needs rest. Does that sound familiar? So it's actually his father-in-law. Any father-in-laws in here? A couple? Okay. Does your son-in-laws listen to you? Sometimes? <laughs> if they're in here, don't answer that. Okay. Um, so father-in-law Jethro to Moses, he starts asking him some questions, and he has some advice for him. Okay, so this is Exodus 18, 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Well, Moses explains, well, I'm kind of the intercessor, like they bring all their problems to me, and then I bring it to God, and I tell them their answer, this kind of thing. Jethro's answer, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Here's what you should do. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, though, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace." And in the story, Moses listened, which, which all the in-laws are saying, amen, right? And that is the structure for the Israelite camp, all the rest of their wilderness journey. Now, fast forward to Jesus. Here he is in the wasteland outskirts of the land, grouping a ragtag group of people together in groups of 50s and 100s, miraculously providing bread for his people. And what does he do? Right, what does he do? Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to then set before the people, okay? It's just something to see. Jesus doesn't gather everyone around and do it all himself. He doesn't individually pray over each person partaking in the feast. He blesses, he breaks, and he gives away through his disciples. He works through his people, he is the provision and the strength for the ministry of his followers. And for anyone paying attention in this moment, this would have, been, this would have brought Moses-esque vibes. Like we're a ragtag group of people. We've got miraculously provided bread. We've got 12 overseers, not unlike the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's cool to note here that Jesus is doing it different. He's not Elijah. 
He's not John the Baptist, and he's not Moses, but he's the perfection of what they were all representing. He's the fulfillment of what they were all leading the people of God towards. That is God's presence. And Jesus is here, God's presence in the flesh. They just haven't fully realized it yet. Verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. And I'm encouraged by this last line, verse 43, and they, the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Hot take number four, God will always replenish what was exhausted for his glory. Okay, who still gets provided for over and beyond what they needed? The disciples. 12 exhausted, hungry disciples equals 12 baskets full to the brim with food. What is filled up is to be poured out. What is emptied is to be filled up again. But here's the thing. Even in provision, there can still be a hardening of the heart. Like, this isn't in our passage this week, but, but just a teaser for next week. We get a clue. Disciples are still struggling with who is this guy who can do these things. This is chapter 6, verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Like, it's tough. Like, we give the disciples so much grief for not getting what is right in front of them, but then we have to take a look at our own lives. Jesus is risen. We're given the Holy Spirit to those who believe, and yet we go our own way all the time. Mark is going to spend so much time in this gospel writing, juxtaposing Jesus with all these powerful leaders in the culture of the day. The synagogue leaders, they would have been all about Moses. But Jesus is doing things different and better and bringing grace where Moses brought the law. The young Jewish students were looking for a rabbi like John the Baptist, who was just martyred for his faith. But he's not the Messiah, whose death will bring the cleansing of all sin. Anyone who knew their history was waiting for the mighty Elijah to return, but instead you get this random guy from Nazareth? Like, what good comes out of there? Teaching that turning hearts to God is like the slow growing of seeds? But that's not exciting. And don't miss Mark's intended audience. Remember, he's writing post-Jesus, Jewish Christians living under Roman rule, right? He's giving insight to how different a life Jesus is calling his people to in comparison to the life that Rome wants to give you. In Jesus' day, Herod was the leader in a lot of ways. I think a bad one, right? But nevertheless, Rome's gospel was that they were saving the nations. They were the mightiest people group to ever exist, and they were here to conquer and to save all under the name of the Son of God, Caesar Augustus. Like, that's their gospel. Mark uses this team, uh, this term king for Herod super loosely, juxtaposing him with this gentle and lowly king from nowhere, right? But this is Jesus. This is how he works. He works through his people, through the movement of his teachings and actions, through the love and grace that he pours out so lavishly on those who draw near to him. We see the motivations of the two, right? Herod was concerned for how it looked to his guests and his reputations, so he gave in to them by bringing death. Jesus was concerned for his people, for they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he provides life and life abundantly. And to answer the rumors that Herod has been hearing, Jesus is not John the Baptist's return. Jesus is not Elijah return. Jesus is not just a prophet of old. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And now some 2,000 years later, that's the reality we get to steep our lives in. Because of the promised Holy Spirit that dwells among us, those who call Jesus Lord have the opportunity to meditate in God's presence daily. 
in his ministry of reconciliation in us and then through us to everywhere that we go. And that's what we get to be filled up today with our community together, you guys. It's so cool to, to be like the disciples that were sent out into their town, into their city. We get to be like that today. We get to be the sent ones filled up by this word of God that Jesus provides. And the question to leave us today as we're all growing through Mark together is the same question that Mark is going to be posing over and over and over again. As we learn these things, the question is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? And depending on your answer, your life could look radically different. For those today who aren't sure, I don't know who Jesus is. I hear a lot about him, but I, don't, I just don't know. That's okay. That's totally fine. Like, you need to hear, we are so, so glad you're here. And our prayer is that as Jesus is being revealed to us through the scripture, not someone we just make up or want him to be, but as he's revealed through the scriptures, um, that we are captivated by who he really is, by his true nature and his love for you. For those of us today that profess Jesus is Lord, then we get to respond with our lives in worship. It's so great for his glory. And to get to respond today through singing songs of praise, through praying in his name, forgiving of our earthly riches, and of course, remembering what he has done for us on the cross through communion. I want to pray us into response for that. Let's just keep pondering that question, who is Jesus to you? And if you say Jesus is Lord, that changes everything, and it is beautiful. I'm going to pray. The tables are open. Let's worship together. Let's worship our King today. Let me pray.